Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Miguel Isaza is a composer from Medellin, Colombia. He is dedicated to sound, both in research and in practice. His electronic music explores expansive sonic terrains through the use of field recordings, sine waves, and various acoustic instruments, including the charango, pan flutes, harmonica, and music boxes. He co-directs the Eter label and other projects aimed at exploring what he calls territories of sound and listening. Miguel, welcome to the show. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, you sent me a, a large folder of uh, several uh, recordings, and so I've been yes. working my way through that. I had discovered your piece called Uji because I have a piece of the same title, so I was intrigued to, to hear what you ha had done with that idea. Yes. And uh, we'll definitely want to talk about that in a little bit. But before we get into that... Uh, before we get into some of your work and processes and, and all of that, I, I always like to go get a little bit of uh, background. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your formative experiences or maybe some major inspirations. And I'm particularly interested in that moment when you knew that you would be a composer or that you would be a musician or that you would work with sound in some creative way. Well, that's... Uh tricky question for me because I myself don't I don't consider myself a musician or something like that and since I, I, I haven't studied that in the academy or something like that and I am more like self-talk explorer I used to define myself as someone who just explores sounds and likes to extract some some sounds and organize them but I when I was young I started to play some instruments I started with classic guitar then moved to electric guitar ended up playing drums and having some bands and things like that and I started to study audio engineering but dropped out in the second year. I think that it maybe wasn't my place, it wasn't the the path I was looking for. And then I started to explore uh, sound design for, for media and worked on several TV projects and interactive media. And there I found um, field recording and it completely changed my my view on on music and sound and listening and before that i was already composing my own my own electronic music but it was more in the in a more traditional way um, i was playing with uh, drum machines and synthesizers and samplers and things like that and with field recording i think is when that change happened because it opened myself i it, it opened me to to a new a whole new perspective in which every sound was 
some kind of musical sound and it actually invited me to to make silence and to explore the the soundscape and be aware of the space also to, towards the different elements that surround me and that actually led me to 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 compose in a completely new way and i started to experiment with those recordings and with the time i started to add new things and explore instruments as well and and trying to articulate different things together well i want to go back to one of the things that you said there even though you don't consider yourself a musician in the traditional sense you do consider yourself a composer or at least a an organizer of these what you call right. these sonic terrains, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it it sort of reminds me of a of a John Cage quote, which I um I, I think I sort of remember how it goes. It's something like if you develop an ear for sounds, musical sounds, it's like developing an ego, and it, so as soon as you start to refuse those sounds as you know not musical, if you start to refuse sounds that are not musical, then you cut yourself off from all of this experience. And it sounds, <laughs> yes. it sounds to me like maybe that's what happened for you when you discovered uh, working with sound, working with field recordings, and you bringing the whole world of sound into your uh, creative work. Yes, it, it could be a composer just because I compose sounds, but when I say that I don't kind of identify with that um, role is that I am I feel more like uh, I'm exploring uh, sounds that many of the sounds I use are, are already composed so I don't create them from scratch so I just uh, take them from nature and, and kind of filter them through my compositions but it's kind of different than the traditional uh, conception of the composer as someone who creates some specific arrangements and have some kind of specific intentions towards what what is going to happen yeah i'm i'm sort of curious i mentioned john cage uh i don't know if you if he if he was someone that was an inspiration for you who how did you get started finding out about field recordings and whose recordings were you listening to and you know how did you get into that world Well uh, of course John Cage has has been a really strong influence for me also because he, he was very related to Zen so that perspective uh, influenced me a lot but he was really um a late discover because I actually uh, got into field recording because of the sound design discipline or, or the sound design practice. I started um, exploring sound design by myself. I created a blog called uh, designingsound.org and there I started to talk with really great sound designers who who led me to field recordings, for example, Tim Preble from New Zealand. Yes. Um, in fact, in fact, Tim is going to be a guest on the show. He is currently at work. Uh, he actually is doing a, 
a really creative uh, show for me. He's sort of producing it himself. So I I recorded my questions and sent them to him. And then he is putting together the whole show, and it should be done hopefully within the next few weeks. Uh, and so it'll probably be the next show after yours. So I'm, oh, I'm fam- all of that to say I'm f- I'm familiar with Tim's work and found it very interesting. Also, so I'm I'm with you there. Great, great. He is fantastic. I, I initially started to explore field recordings uh, in a more sound design minded way. I mean, I was recording sound effects and gathering a lot of sound effects. But I think the experience of listening is what really showed me a completely new point of view in terms of how the soundscape and how the sounds that are already there, already out there, affect you. So I started to explore the work of of different artists and um, I remember watching a documentary about Stephen Bitiello. All that uh, experimental music zine towards field recording really influenced me and uh, I started to actually explore it um, in a new blog I started which is called Sonic Terrain and um, in the moment it was something like uh, 2010, I believe, and I started to make interviews and uh, explore different conceptions of of how to approach the soundscape and the field recordings and start to um, explore this acoustic ecology movement in in which field recording is strongly related to the context but also I got introduced to the Concrete Music School or the Pierre Schaeffer mm-hmm. works and Michel Chong and all those composers which um, were using also a lot of field recordings but in a completely new way as since they were focused on the sound, sound objects and the acousmatic and, or invisible or non-causal ways of approaching sound so I started to explore all those concepts and then I started to integrate them and relate them all together and I was kind of working as sound designer for a while and then I dropped out again and I started to work with some installations which I'm currently working on that but I have moved on. I have moved moved from all the perspectives I have kind of settled on. So yes, it's kind of uh, exploring. That's why yeah. I initially say that I am more like an explorer because in in the field in the field you don't only face with sound, but you face with yourself and listening becomes a more personal and spiritual dimension is because for example when you are outside in nature you start to to feel a lot of things you start to explore new things not just in terms of sound but sound leads you to to completely new experiences and 
I remember, for example, finding or discovering this, some labels like Touch Music. Particularly, I remember a release by Jana Winderen, who is a field recordist working in very interesting frontiers between what is sonically available and what is non-audible, but is sonically present. And I think those all those artists from from Touch were very influenced me. And and I'm sorry, uh, are you saying uh, Touch or Torch? Touch. Touch music. Okay. I I always uh, with each guest, I, I sort of I always come away with all of these notes of, th- of threads to follow after our conversation. So I want to make sure I um, <laughs> take good notes. Uh, yes. Uh, you mentioned your website, the Sonic Terrain. It's sonic-terrain.com, and I would encourage any of the listeners to go and and check that out. There's a, a lot to explore there, a lot of information and, and a variety of different um, of things to read. Um, let's talk a little bit, uh, sort of building on some of the things you said. Uh, I want to go back to this idea of listening and how that has shaped your work uh, as a creator. You definitely have a unique approach to making sounds and making, well, we'll call it music for lack of a better word at the moment, uh, your explorations. You, <laughs> you, you create these sort of subtly and slowly changing electronic and ambient uh, and uh, using natural sounds that, that really reward patient listening and attention. Yes. And I read something online, and I, I don't remember now if you wrote this or someone wrote this about your work, but it's a, it's a bit heavy. <laughs> so, but I'd like to read it and uh, maybe by way begin a discussion about your work. Sounds so, great. Okay, uh, here it is. His compositional work calls for a silent activity, an attentive listening that is present in the intuitive exploration of the sonic phenomenon exposing its subtle and textural qualities, especially those present in the perception of time scales, thus generating sonic collages between micro and macro realms, which result in a reflection towards morphology, space, and emptiness, a process usually done by processing and combining field recordings, found objects and instruments, and sine waves. So there's a couple of things in there that I'd love to get your response to. One is the idea of a silent activity and an attentive listening. Now, to me, I think of Zen meditation. I mean, that's a, a large part yes. of that. The experience of of doing uh, sitting meditation is a silent activity. You're doing silence. <laughs> you know, yes, completely. Yeah, and so, but I wonder what it is that you hope listeners will experience when they when they listen to music and, and sort of reflect on that whole paragraph that I just read? Well, is the, the listening experience um, is very different all the time because I have played, uh, for example, in the same concert, many people feel different things and have a very different experience. But I have found that all of them, no matter the kind of introspection they have all of them experience some kind of detention they always or many times have told me that 
these compositions and concerts and the, the sounds I used to offer, invite them to stop and just listen. And I took that idea from, from those experiences. And I think I don't have a particular intention towards what I'm composing. Just because, as I say, is it is always different for for the people who are listening. But I think that silent activity is related to actually is very influenced by by zen as you say is very influenced by zazen because um, the way i think about listening is as this kind of activity which is very active it implies a lot of awareness and attention and concentration but it has no object like med like zen meditation which is without any kind of particular object to, to be focused on. I don't approach listening as something that implies a kind of uh, subject that is listening to an object, which are the sounds, but I think it's more about sounds that are listening to sounds. I mean, we are just sounds and, and listening is something silent. Silence is the kind of sound of, of listening. We don't hear listening. We don't listen to listening. <laughs> yeah. We, we are always, um, when we, we are listening, I think we are creating some silence. But it's not a silence in terms of absence, but it's more about um, being aware of this huge activity that is happening in sound from the smallest sounds to, to the largest structures so that micro and macro realms are related in that way in that way of uh, paying attention to 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 them but it's not about fixing the attention to them it's more like opening the, the awareness which is something that also relates to that silent activity and when I say attentive listening, I'm referring more to that opening of, of consciousness, of that opening of the actual moment and the actual experience of sound rather than some kind of analysis or some kind of fixation towards uh, some kind of object. It's yeah. more about uh, being the sound, more about dissolving the, the listener and making him to be the sound. I, I think it's you know, this idea is very similar to what Cage was doing in some of his, uh, a lot of his later music, certainly, was creating this environment for listening. And 
I remember very, very memorably when I was a graduate student at Cincinnati and we performed his piece called 14. So this is from the series of number pieces, his late, uh -huh. late works. And so 14 means that it, it was for 14 people and various instruments, very, you know, orchestral instruments. And I was playing the the piano, but it was bowed piano. So you take horsehair and you put between the strings and you sort of slide the hair back and forth and it, it mm -hmm. bows the piano in a way. And uh, I think there, I can't remember the instrumentation exactly, but I know that there was some string instruments, some woodwinds, some percussion. But anyway, we rehearsed this piece in one of the big rehearsal rooms and the, the first rehearsal some of the musicians didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand what to make of it. And hmm. then my teacher, Alan Adi, is, you know, he came into the rehearsal and, and spoke and, and spoke about Cage, and, and he just has a way of explaining this kind of things uh, to people. And um, the next time, it, it captured this kind of essence of what you're talking about. Everyone was just open and listening, and I have to tell you that to this day, even the concert wasn't quite the same, but that second time through, everyone was just really attentive to, and they were doing exactly what you were saying. It's an active listening, and it was a, a spiritual experience, you know, uh, very rare to have that kind of experience in Western art music, you know, but there it was, and, totally. and, and, it, and it reinforced this idea that that I always had about Cage, which was that he invited the opportunity for this kind of thing to happen with with almost every piece that he wrote, but certainly with those later pieces. Anyway, I'm not sure where I was going with that other than to say that I, I think that you, that what you're doing here is uh, at least related to that idea. And I also wanted to say one other thing, which is you know, I think a lot of people from the outside would look at, at Zen meditation. I mean, it's even sort of entered our popular vernacular language, like, oh, that was so Zen, you know. And mm -hmm. I, people don't really know what that means. Uh, I'm not saying that I know exactly what it means. But but from doing sitting meditation, I I have a different view of it than I think people who don't do this kind of meditation would, would maybe have. I think there's this idea that when one sits meditation that, that it's peaceful and calm and serene all the time, uh, and it's, cer it's certainly not. Uh, I mean, you're dealing with the pain in your knees, you know, you're dealing with uh, your, your mind constantly coming up and saying things, you know, and bubbling these thoughts, just bubbling constantly to the surface, <laughs> the activity yes. of your mind. And it, it takes a long, long time of sitting with that. I, I know, I mean, I just know from the, the very experienced meditators that I know, it takes a long time of, of sitting with that uh, to, to uh, what can we say, to where it looks on the outside like it's very peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, yes. You, you know, um, so maybe this is a good sort of transition point to, to actually getting into some of the Zen Buddhism discussion about how this sort of your relationship with the spiritual mm -hmm. practice and how it shows up for you in your music. And um, maybe we could talk about a specific work, but maybe to begin the discussion, I would just ask you, what what is your relationship between 
your your creative work and the spiritual practice, and where do you find uh, the connection other than this idea of the attentive listening? Is there anything else that that it brings to your your artistic practice? Well, I think what you were saying is very interesting uh, regarding John Cage and this idea of opening, because it strongly relates to what you said before uh, after because um i think the same experience people used to have when starting to meditate is what we feel sometimes when listening because we think uh, this kind of silent activity is very simple and is just about contemplation and feeling some kind of um happiness or something like that and many times these states of stillness and happiness and serenity are more like a, a process a result of cultivation a result of things that come out from from a, a process not just an uh, an immediate ways i think what john cage was proposing with the the experimental music concept is actually this notion of change of of being open to change to to kind of abandon those rigid and, and fixed structures of perception or thinking or ultimately living and change them just by opening them to new experiences and new conceptions and many times the difficulties toward meditation are similar to the difficulties toward listening because for example when you are musically tra trained or you are an audio engineer engineer or something like that you face this problem of knowing too much so you cannot you cannot really listen naturally and and purely and it actually relates to your second question because uh, one of my strongest influences in Zen uh, has been Shunryu Suzuki and he has this idea of the beginner mind and this innocent mind, this open and always changing but always open mind. And well, I think uh, Buddhism has been has had uh, a, a really strong influence in my creative path because it actually showed me that my creative path was no a different path than my my life i mean i think the the central teaching of buddhism is the practice and as you said from the outside it looks very different yeah than when you are actually practicing and sitting in front of a wall. Yeah. And it's because you, from the outside, one tends to analyze and conceptualize and have a kind of a theory or an initial impression. But when you are in the actual practice, you realize that the path is actually your own life and your own problems and your own emotions and your own experience and that is something actually related to sound to to the way i think about sound and the way i approach sound give me a second please 
I'm Spe sorry. <laughs> Speaking of a uh, moment of Zen, <laughs> there it was. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, in the actual moment of the listening experience, we often have completely different perspectives from the same sound. And sometimes I think a composition is going to offer some stillness and calm. And then I, talking when talking with uh, the person, I give the composition or something. For example, recently I I gave uh, the that Uji release to a friend, and she listened to the to it. And in in the next day, she told me that in the during the 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 track number four. She started to cry and to remember a lot of things she didn't uh, remember. I think that that kind of, of liberating experience is also important and sometimes it is even more important than some kind of stillness and, and quietness and this calm people think is going to be reached for example from from the Zen meditation. In my own experience, I, I really value those moments where I have these encounters with things that are not so easy to, to deal with. Yeah. I, um, I also discovered Zen Buddhism through reading John Cage, uh, specifically Silence and, and some of his other books, but Silence was the one that really yes. was the most influential on me. Both, both in my conception of music and sound, but also with the with the Zen Buddhism, I just was really interested in this. Uh, from his writings, to be something, uh, well, I don't know how to articulate it for you, but for years, you know, I would reread Silence, and for years, I would think about Zen Buddhism, and I would get a book here and there, and I would read. It was always this sort of philosophical idea and I could see how what the way Cage talked about it I could see how it showed up in his work and how he was uh, sort of practicing this discipline uh, in his uh, artistic work and uh, letting go of the self and ego and chance operations and all of all of his methods to to sort of remove himself which is essentially I think the main thing that he got from Zen Buddhism uh, but it was always this abstract idea. It was always a philosophical mm -hmm. idea. And it wasn't until, uh, it's been several years now, I think it's been probably six or seven years now, I took a, a, a Zen meditation class at the Houston Zen Center. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that the uh, at the time, the, the abiding teacher there, she's now the abbot, uh, her name is Galen Godwin, and she is 
the um, abbot of the Houston Zen Center, and she was a student in the lineage of Shinryu Suzuki from the San Francisco mm-hmm. Zen Center. So Reb Anderson was her teacher, and then Suzuki yes. was was his teacher. And um, anyway, so when, once I started the actual practice, I I came to a an a, an interesting observation, which is, I, well, or a question. I guess it was really a question. I wondered if if John Cage actually practiced this <laughs> philosophy or if he just practiced it through his work uh you know because sitting seems to be a you know a crucial element of of zen totally buddhist practice so uh I, anyway i was curious about that and the, recently a book came out called where the heart beats and it's about john cage and zen buddhism i haven't yes, fin- i, I haven't it. oh you read it i haven't finished yes. it yet uh uh, but uh, it's on my it's on my stand, and I'm I'm working my way through it. But does <laughs> I'll ask you? Does it say in that book uh, exactly what what uh, what his relationship was with the actual practice? It kind of enlightens the idea, but I don't remember when I where I read it. But he told that he didn't did sitting meditation he didn't do sitting meditation he was i i i kind of relate him to more to the rinzai school uh-huh. rather than the soto, soto zen, zen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mostly because for me his art is sometimes like a kind of koan like um this paradox paradox Mm-hmm. It's kind of um, like a game, but I also think that the sitting meditation is is crucial. I, I because for example, I had the experience of my encounter with Zen was with uh, the T Suzuki, Daisen Steitaro Suzuki, mm-hmm. and he is more like a philosopher and has this strong and, and heavy language. Uh, which is very easy to understand for Western trained philosopher or mm-hmm. or, or mind, mm-hmm. but the language of Shunryu Suzuki is more like uh, this simple and direct to the practice language. Yeah, and it was until I discovered my current meditation teacher with. Who is um, in a in a in a little foundation called Mountain of Silence? In Spanish is Montaña de Silencio. I actually met him in a, in a haiku reading in a haiku group that used to gather to write and comment some haiku. He has been strongly influenced by by Shunri Suzuki and I started to to read about him yeah I'll also I have been reading uh, Reb Anderson's works and that experience really changed me my my conception of, of Zen I have been also in studying with uh, Tibetan lamas and, and exploring Tibetan Buddhism hmm. Since I I am interested on on Buddhism in general, but in the terms of practice, uh, Zen is is the one I 
that really moved me and, and shaken me, uh, both the in terms of, of the Zazen as in terms of um, the Samu, for example, which kind of um, merged this daily life and my daily work with the practice and, and gave me a, a spiritual background. Yeah, you mentioned the um, Suzuki. Uh, one of the classes that I took at the Houston Zen Center was on his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which mm -hmm. if uh, anyone listening, if you're interested at all in Zen, that's a really great one to start with, uh, a really great book to start with. And the quote, I, it might even be the first line of the book. It's, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in mm -hmm. the expert's mind, there are few. And I, I even use that with my students, you know, to talk about, uh, you know, of course, I, I'm teaching percussion. Uh, and so, you know, mm -hmm. I, I start out with that idea. I said, remember what it was like when you were a beginner, when you first got your instrument and how exciting that was and how that just seemed boundless you know that's the thing that we want to capture in our day-to-day -day practice as musicians of an instrumental sort of practice that that's a really wonderful thing to think about don't don't ever get to the point where you feel like you know where you know it all you know uh, and then yes, i and then totally. i yeah and then i bring that quote in uh, so that's a really fantastic book and i would i would recommend that to any of the listeners that uh, are interested in what we're talking about here today yes there is this one of my favorite philosophers who, who is called Raymond Panikar. And he used to say that the art of listening was a kind of uh, spiritual discipline, a kind of um, a spiritual dimension, because listening, truly listening, uh, invites you to empty yourself, to kind of look for this beginner's mind and we when we are facing difficulties towards listening is just because we have too much inside of us and that also applies for example to a conversation when when you are thinking about your own conceptions and your ideas and what you are maybe you will not listen to the other person so well because when you try to empty yourself and, and don't kind of put yourself and put, put the conversation in a fixed point, you will be opening to the other and the other will be opening to you. Is more like this relationship. I think listening is truly this, it's a meditation, really. It's, it's a way of, because it's not just about the object. It's not just about the sound, but essentially it's about the listener. It's uh, a discipline the listener kind of adopts and is more about making silence than being aware of sound because sound is already sounding. <laughs> that is also very similar to, to what John Cage used to, to say about, for example, the soundscape of... Uh, city activity or, or something like that. Yeah. Those sounds are already there. We don't need to add anything. We don't need to focus on anything. We just need to, to be a beginner and, and not to start thinking and over adding stuff and saturating the sounds with unnecessary things. Yeah, or, or is, judging the sounds. Of course. 
Yeah. And it, that that is also kind of related to the acousmatic tradition, mm. which started in the ancient ancient Greece. And this, because for example, when you approach to to the acousmatic ways of listening, you need to avoid all the semantic add-ons and all these causes and visual causes and relationships and try to go to the sound itself. The only way to do that is to empty yourself from those kind of desires and, and intentions toward the sound and it will reveal as it is. Let's talk a little bit, let's tie in some of what we've been talking about to a specific piece. We're, we're finally going to get to your music. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to just talk about the, maybe the piece that, um, I'd like to talk about this album that you made called Uji on the Eilean Rec label. And I'd also be interested to hear how you uh, became connected with that label. I think they're doing some fascinating work. But the title Uji comes from the writings of the great Zen master, ancient Zen master Dogen. And uh, I mentioned earlier that I I also was inspired by this idea. I made my own piece uh, called Uji. And that translates to something like being time or time being. And essentially, the the way I understand his writing uh, on this subject is that uh, the basic concept is that existence and time are intimately linked in a way. And so I wonder how you feel that this the collection of, of soundscapes, well, it's sort of like one long soundscape broken up into different parts, but maybe you can describe the piece and how you feel like this music captures this idea, or if you want to just talk about first about Uji, about your conception of what, what it means, and just go from there. I think it affects, um, it affected the actual practice and the actual way of creating the that album. I initially, I was initially contacted by Matthias, who runs the label. He offered me to create an album and gave me almost like a year or something to create it. And I started to explore some instruments and, and to gather some sounds and create a kind of library. But I was feeling that I, I needed a more natural and, and intimate relationship with the sounds I was organizing. So I went to the mountains in a very far away house. My girlfriend's family has, and it's far away from the internet and any kind of communication and things like that. So it's a very special place to to listen and to to reflect upon those these kinds of sounds and I actually composed a lot of the sounds in the in the actual 
environment. So most of the time I, I was just opening the microphone and recording the soundscape that was all, what was going in that place and merging it with other things I already had. Most of the time the names for the pieces I release came after I got the sounds. Sometimes those pieces are influenced by some things I read or things like that during the composition process. And by the time I was exploring the the Shobogenso, which is the the book in the the work by Dogen in which the this concept of time appears. And I, I, I remember that phrase when he said that mountain, mountains are time and oceans are time. And if they weren't time, there will not be oceans or, or mountains, right? I strongly, that, that had a very strong impression on me. And I started to realize that my approach to sound was very similar to that idea of of time because sound and time are very related and 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 sound is a kind of reflection of of time but at, at the same time um, the concept of time itself is very related to sound so i started to explore uh, that concept of time being in terms of of the soundscape actually more to understand how not only the whole soundscape was a kind of moment of time um, which in this case is also a moment of of being but also how all the elements that were present in those soundscapes are actually little moments of, of time and I, I have been exploring um, time scales uh, a lot trying to relate these granular sounds these micro sounds with more with larger structures I think I, I thought that uh, that concept was perfectly to to kind of uh, reflect the the idea behind the the album, but is not a way of defining or, or creating conceptual music or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's more relative, but it influenced me a lot, and and it actually it, it is actually related to my own experience of listening because when I started out with creating electronic music, I was depending on a lot of instruments and synthesizers and controllers and things like that. And that album was just a laptop and a field recorder, a handheld recorder. So it was also a kind of challenge for me to simplify and use just few things, just few instruments, just few sounds and kind of find beauty in in that simplicity. So tell us about the sounds in Uji. Where where all uh, did the sounds come from? There are a lot of sounds 
from the actual soundscape is um, very rich soundscape since there are not so much traffic or, or machines and things like that is very natural so you can listen to a lot of, of elements in the soundscape. I, am, I have been fascinated with insects and you can listen to a lot of insects in the different parts of the album. Uh, some of them are kind of uh, transformed or used uh, to create other sounds. And I tried also to record different um, moments of the of, of the day so in the night there are other animals and species and things like that and during the morning there are for example a, a lot of birds Nearby the house, there is this river, and well, I, I even combined those natural soundscapes with other sounds I had from previous recordings, kind of uh, special for my personal in my personal library because maybe they remember me some things, but. Also because I find them interesting in terms of the sonic activity. And I, in that album I actually used a lot of uh, Andean instruments. Uh, local instruments from I mean traditional instruments from South American spiritual traditions as well as artistic traditions for example like the charango and the pan flutes and some flutes I also used I also like to work with ocarinas and I have been really interested on this kind of simple but uh, really profound um, instruments which carry some kind of spirit from nature and some kind of an ancient spirit. I have been very influenced by, by the indigenous traditions and I have been learning with, with indigenous leaders and really great people who has teached me about about the importance of not just the sound of these instruments but also the importance of the soundscape and in that album I tried to merge both instruments and soundscapes also used some sine waves which I am a very a, a big fan of, of them these pure, pure waves. Yes. Yeah. And and well, I tried to to merge all of that. It's more like uh, an intuitive way of of relating different kind of sounds 
and exploring different timbers and also leaving space for mistakes or, or some kind of raw playing and, and ways of approaching the instruments. I don't really know how to play them, but I can get some sounds from them and, mm-hmm. and create. Well, I think this uh, album is particularly beautiful, and thank you so much for sending me all of the uh, audio uh, that you did. It was it really was oh. helpful to have as sort of a background to our discussion to uh, see uh, sort of the breadth of your work. So I, I really uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, thank parti- you, but, thank you. Yes, thank you. So uh, particularly this piece is. Uh, one of my favorites, I think, of, of everything that I've heard of yours. So uh, thank you for that, and thank you for this discussion. Uh, we should probably wrap up. We're getting a little close to an hour here, so I, I usually try to keep the shows to around an hour. Mm-hmm. And so to wrap up, I like to get some perspective on the creative life. And I use this term, again, I'll, I'll plug Sharon Loudon's book, uh, Living and Sustaining a Creative Life. I love that phrase. And so um, I would ask you then, what advice do you have for those who are set on a creative life or a creative even career? And what advice do you have for living and sustaining that? Well, it's some kind of difficult, but I will say that finding calm is basic and and really important. It has been for me crucial because I have looked for you know a lot of um, paths and ideas and listening to different advices and things like that. And what actually helped me, what really helped me to expand my my creativity was to first find some kind of calm and some kind of peace because a disturbed and a messy mind I don't know if could really create something not uh, maybe not interesting but but something meaningful to to the life of the person who is creating, but also to to the people who are receiving the the work we are doing, because I think that is at the end something really important to to create connections between between the people who, in my case, the people who listen, and to really understand that we are not just creating things but we are creating relationships and we are affecting lives our own life and others life and we are never creating alone we are just part of nature and and in that way our responsibility is kind of find a way of being um an honest and, and filter of things which are going to be in others' minds and those things will influence them to create other things and it's a kind of infinite change. So so that that will be my advice to, to find 
to first find some calm and and to know yourself be, before starting to create something. It's not that I'm not saying that you will find a point where you kind of find yourself completely and because it's an endless road, but it's more about having this awareness, this constant awareness about your life because as I said before, I don't think there is something as uh, normal life and creative life in the other side. The creative creative life is actually the life itself, finding that what we are creating is what we are actually living. Yeah. No separation. Yes, completely. <laughs> it's not about separating things. It's more about finding an, an integration and yeah. relation. That's great advice. Miguel, thank you so much. Beautiful, beautiful to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much for your work, and uh, I will make sure and put all of the the links and notes about your music in the show notes on the website. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks to you. It was it was really great. Will be great to to keep in touch. I certainly will. Let's come to Medellin sometime. Hey, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.